Welcome to the Quad Pod, a podcast highlighting life at Baylor School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Inspired by the many converging paths on our campus where faculty, staff, students, alumni, and families meet, we bring you stories from all angles told by many voices. I'm Mike Kelly, and I'll be your host for this episode. Every year, we have the difficult task of saying goodbye to faculty members who are beginning that new chapter in life we call retirement. Such is the case this year for Dan Scott, who has faithfully served as Baylor's chaplain since 2003. On this episode, we will take a tour through the decades with Bill Cushman as we seek to understand the chaplaincy at Baylor and how it has evolved over the years. We will speak with Assistant Head of School Shaw Wilson about what the school is looking for in hiring its next chaplain, and finally we'll speak with Dan himself about his time at Baylor. Join us and discover what ties us together as a community. And now, Episode 5, Faith and Friends. If you know Baylor School, you know the name Bill Cushman. And if you know Bill Cushman, you know a great storyteller. As it turns out, both a love for Baylor and the ability to spin a good yarn seem to have been with Bill right from the beginning. And that's beginning with a capital B. Consider his recollection about the 1940 gridiron matchup between Baylor and, well, you know who. After the football game with Macaulay in 1940, um... Macaulay stopped the series, and it didn't resume until 1971. So that 1940 game was the last game before that uh, hiatus. And uh, it's always been a great source of pleasure to older Baylor people because Baylor won that game. But the, the final play of the game was a 93-yard touchdown run by one of the Baylor players. Siren went off ending the game as he was running down the field. So for 31 years, that was <laughs> Baylor fans' final memory of playing Macaulay in football. Um, my point of raising that is that I attended that game, actually, in my mother's womb. Bill's knowledge of Baylor, in fact, extends back before his birth as he and his family have been connected to the school from the 30s on through to today. He knows the school as a student, teacher, coach, parent, and grandparent. Who better to ask then for a quick tour through the decades of the chaplaincy program? As Bill explains, in the early days, there wasn't a need for a chaplain because all the early headmasters were capable of religious instruction. The period from when my youngest Jacobway cousin graduated in 1949 until I entered in 1953. That four-year period is actually the only time since the fall of 1936 that I haven't had a direct relative or myself <laughs> uh, present at the school and associated with the school. That for all those decades, the school really didn't need a chaplain. The school head, all the way through her Marks Jr., every school head the school ever had was completely able and willing 
to deliver a homily, to deliver a Bible lesson, was familiar with Christian doctrine. For a long time in Baylor's history, chapel was run by students and was pretty predictable. The framework of the chapel program was set in stone. A senior presided, and it went like this. Let us open our chapel service today by standing and singing the first two stanzas of hymn number so-and-so. Now, I brought with me today a copy of the hymnal that was in the pews at the time. It's still in print. The Cokesbury Hymnal. And the senior would usually choose, there were about, about six in there that we sang over and over and over and over again. And they're lively. Stand up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Da, 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 and serve the King of Kings. Oh, come, 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 come to the church in the wild wood. Da, 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 da. I can just still hear us singing those things. And oh, everybody would just belt that out. And nobody gave a damn whether they were religious <laughs> or not. You know, they, it was just, we'd belt it out. The singular focus on Christian values and teachings reached its apex in the 50s. Here, Bill reads from an old catalog from 1955, promoting the religious instruction at the school. Among the four things the school does, builds character, superior scholarship, physical development, and Christian training. For 61 years, Baylor has regarded wholesome Christian training and strong scholarship as the most important features of a boy's development. Although Baylor is not a church school, the teaching and training are distinctly Christian. The masters, which is what prep schools used to call their faculty members, so I'll change it, the faculty members are proper examples and point the way to a clean Christian life. Why hadn't John Roy Baylor tied the school to his own faith tradition? The answer, Bill thinks, is likely found in his alma mater. As a proud alumnus of Thomas Jefferson's University of Virginia, John Roy likely modeled his own school after UVA, where Jefferson had distinctly sought to establish a separation between education and religion. But it's clear that for quite some time, Baylor's emphasis on Christian values and teachings was a vital component of the school's culture. While it remains so today, there comes with it a recognition and respect for other faith traditions. So I asked Bill when the focus on cultural literacy first began. So Charles Hawkins' tenure here from 64 to 70 was the most tumultuous period, certainly, of my lifetime. Those were tough times. It was it was tough to recruit for the boarding school. Uh, the, the military had fallen out of favor. It was really, though, in the 80s that everything began to change because by then the so-called culture wars in the United States were really revving up. It should come as no surprise that Baylor was not immune to the cultural shockwaves of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And as America changed, the Baylor of old went through many changes as well. The war in Vietnam helped spur the end of the military program at Baylor in 1971, which had been a part of the school since 1917. 
It saw the first African-American students enrolled on campus in 1973 and the first female students in 85. By the 80s, the students and faculty filling the chapel pews looked and even thought very differently from their predecessors. So when a particularly ardent chapel speaker outlined an especially narrow path to heaven for Baylor students one day, it initiated a sort of identity crisis at the school, one that Dr. Herb Barks, headmaster and former Presbyterian minister, bravely guided the students and faculty through. Later the same day, after the chapel service, he called the community back together. He called the school back together that afternoon after classes were over. And he said, I want you to know that that's not who we are. And he set out almost impromptu, except, of course, as a theologian and as a smart man, He'd been thinking about these issues as he saw the country dividing over all this stuff. I mean, none of this was new. But it had never hit Baylor life in such a stark form. And so that afternoon, this is not who we are, and it's not who we're going to be. It's not our place to tell you where you're going when you die and what you have to do or not have to do or anything else. As soon as all that, those things started happening, you know, in such quick succession that I've described at length, the whole atmosphere of the community, we might say, matured. While Judeo-Christian values remain central to Baylor life throughout the 80s, as they do today, New speakers representing different perspectives and traditions were welcomed to campus by Dr. Barks, including one of the school's most celebrated student-athletes, Randy Weinberg. Randy was president of his class five out of his six years and was a national wrestling champion, went to Princeton, and from Princeton, Randy became Baylor's second Rhodes Scholar. Well, Randy, the Rhodes Scholar, decides he's going to write his thesis at Oxford about Julian Huxley. And he discovers that at some point, Huxley, in his, in his uh, religious search, went to Thailand and got interested in Buddhism. So he decides that since Huxley went to Thailand, that he needed to go to Thailand. So he got permission from the Rhodes Trust to go to Thailand for a year. And damn if he didn't decide to become a Buddhist monk. By the time Bill and Dr. Barks invited Randy back to speak to the students in chapel, he was a full-fledged Buddhist monk known as Kitty Sorrow. And I had such great fun introducing him to the students. And, uh, you know, the valedictorian and blah, blah, blah. And a five-time Mid-South champion wrestler and a four-time place winner at the National Prep School Wrestling Tournament and the 100-and-whatever-pound champion, national champion. And here he'd, he'd, he'd get up, you know. <laughs> he looked just like Gandhi. As it turns out, this began a lifelong friendship between Barks, the Presbyterian minister, and Kitty Sorrow and became a model for the community that mutual respect and care can transcend theological differences. Herb just 
hauled him over to his office and spent the rest of the day with him. And I mean, I think they really had a profound effect on each other. Um, because as a Buddhist, Randy's Kittisaro's principal interest has been bringing together people of various religions and helping them to see ways in which their religions had similarities. And I think that Herb has been very much interested in that himself. And so it was really a meeting of the minds. Having helped the school to navigate some of its most challenging years and having served for so long as the religious heart of the community, Dr. Bark's departure in 88 left a considerable vacuum. Fortunately, the talented chaplains that were to carry the torch of religious instruction in subsequent years showed they were capable not only of preserving the school's Judeo-Christian values, but at the same time serving Baylor's increasingly international community and its many perspectives and faith traditions. And luckily, right in the middle of that, we got a new chaplain, Ed Snow, came in, I think, in the fall of 89, which was just one year after Herb had left. Snow had, he was ordained Methodist minister. He was a graduate of the Yale Seminary. He was a kind, decent human being, but he was a, he had done all his PhD work except his dissertation for a, for a PhD in theology from Yale. He was a real scholar and he was a nice guy. And he was so dadgum smart that he had, he had educated himself about, about Judaism and about Hinduism and Islam, Buddhism. So all of a sudden the chaplain had to be, who was leading the, the religious life of the school for the students, but he had to be able to communicate with a wide variety of religious perspectives among the faculty. And he had to be able to, to talk winsomely and respectfully with an incredible range of points of view in the Baylor community as a whole. So that is pretty much what Dan walked into. I don't think Dan had to create the position, but Dan, in my view, has been wonderful in that position. You know, you look at and listen to old Dan for 30 seconds and you know, He's a Southern preacher, but boy, he's more than that because he's educated himself about Islam and about Hinduism and about Buddhism and, 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 and Judaism. And he's got a good sense of humor and he's just a likable guy. He can give an invocation that is appropriate to that particular group. As so many clergy can't do, you know, what he'll say to the football team when they have their devotions before a game and what he would say if he spoke to a, 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 a gathering of, of our boarding students who come from a wide variety of religious traditions. You know, he, 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 he's capable of doing of meeting both those responsibilities skillfully. So that's my idea of what a chaplain is now. Speaking of football game devotionals, 
I got Coach Phil Massey here to read one from Dan's book of Baylor Prayers. Let's have a listen. One of my favorite prayers before our our games uh, of Dan's was one that was in 2011 before the Macaulay game. God of every challenge, as we assemble together again, we do so as thankful people. Grateful for the deep loyalties this game represents. Grateful for friends on both sides of this field. Grateful for two traditions that strive to honor you through teaching and learning and serving. Even though we are often fierce competitors, we are on the same team in our hopes and dreams for a stronger community and a better world. May we continue to bring out the best in each other. So tonight, keep us safe, sane, and somewhat sensible. Forgive us when our exuberance becomes irrational or destructive. Teach us how to pray with head and heart. And bless us all as we compete and cheer. Amen. Next, we speak with Assistant Head of School, Shaw Wilson, about the qualities Baylor looks for when selecting a chaplain. I'm Shaw Wilson. I'm the assistant headmaster. I graduated in 1984, and I am in my 24th year at Baylor as a faculty member. You know, the chaplain in in general is there to provide spiritual guidance to all students and faculty, uh, and really the the whole Baylor family. The you know the details of the position, the the day to day, break down into a lot of different things, including uh, planning and executing all of our chapel programming that happens each Monday. And that's the most visible piece, uh, I think, of, of the chaplain's job. But in a broader sense, it's really to provide that pastoral presence and spiritual guidance to all of our students and faculty. As a student, I recall having um, this kind of breadth of, of speaker types. We would have certainly a fair number of non, I guess, non-spiritual speakers, secular speakers, if you will. Uh, and then among the spiritual speakers, we, even back in the 80s, we had uh, a pretty wide array of, uh, of religions represented. I remember uh, Jewish speakers, Muslim speakers, um, Hindu speakers, uh, Baylor's own alumni, uh, who and often, and often were the case that we had... Um, Randy Weinberg, uh, who uh, is known as Kitasaro, he's spoken at Baylor many, many times, um, and he's a Buddhist monk. So I think that at least going back to Dr. Bark's time, that's been a pretty um, a steady theme to have a, a wide array of, of spiritual messages represented. Uh, and part of that, I think, is being a, a school that has a strong Judeo-Christian heritage and one which um, you know has uh, has a, f- a faith statement and, and one of their major values is is faith and spirituality, but not being a denominational school. And I think you have to uh, you have to stake your claim there somewhere. And I think on the outside it may seem like a very difficult thing to do um, because you know like a Catholic school that's a pretty obvious way to go, right? Uh, or if you're a Presbyterian school, it's an obvious way to go. And if you're a uh, a school like Baylor, it's a little more complicated 
but it's always been that way. I think our students, if, if our goal is really to, to provide students with an understanding of the world and an understanding of, of other people as well as their own spiritual journey, then we're doing a pretty good job of that. If our job were to indoctrinate kids into a specific type of worship, we would need to go about it in a different way, and that's not really been, uh, been our approach. You know, we lean on our chaplain to, to speak at some very important events. Um, often these are kind of celebratory events, building dedications, uh, convocation at the beginning of the year, commencement at the end of the year, other kind of um, rituals that we have in, in, in a given year, athletic contests, uh, things of that nature. And again, part of what we want is to, to set a tone and having the chaplain perform these duties helps set a certain tone for our school. Our chaplains have always been teachers. We feel like that's an important role for them to play, to truly be a part of the faculty, to teach classes. Um, and obviously they've taught a variety of things, most often in the history department, but uh, we want to maintain that. And, and uh, I think that, that most often our chaplains have done a fantastic job there. It's also a good way to cultivate relationships with students on a, on a more traditional faculty basis. We want our uh, chaplain to have a real strong historical and theological understanding of Christianity and other major religions. Um, so somebody who's really learned and not just learned about their particular faith walk, um, but about others' faith walks, because that's crucial in a school like Baylor where uh, students and faculty will have a wide variety of those, um, those faith walks. And I think a sensitivity to that is as, as important as knowledge about that. At the, at the same time, it's a chaplain. Uh, we are a school that's based on Judeo-Christian values, and so we want someone to um, be firmly rooted in their own tradition. I think a lot of time prayers at events are ceremonious and kind of perfunctory. They just kind of, they perform their duty and they move on. And what I remember about Dan and will always carry with me is that he either he is so good at writing those prayers that he can do it very quickly or he really spends a lot of time trying to make sure he is both um, timely and powerful um, because it's really rare that he has done a prayer at any function I've been at where he hasn't really made me be in the moment and stop and think which is what he's supposed to do you know, I think a real powerful prayer does just that. It makes us all stop and think about the content in the moment and, and our duty or our um, purpose. And I, Dan's as good as anybody I've ever seen at doing that, and he's done it consistently. Um, no matter the occasion, no matter the, um, the need. And so I don't know how he does it, um, but he's really good at it. <laughs> and so I, I've that's, that's my lasting memory of it. Headmaster Scott Wilson. I have many uh, favorite prayers from Reverend Scott, but this one struck me. It was from the opening ceremony uh, in the fall of 2011. Eternal and ever-present God, Thank you for the privilege of being in this place at this time. Thank you for those who are here with us. Many of them will become our friends for a lifetime. 
Thank you for your presence among us in all our conversations and interactions. Now strengthen all of us for the journey ahead. When we are down, lift us up. When we are sad or upset, help us to be receptive to the encouragement of others. When others around us are discouraged, may we become their encouragers. Free us from our fears and anxieties about tomorrow. Let us be calm and confident and fully aware that you are always and forever with us and for us. Hear our prayer. Amen. Spring was in the air the day I sat down with Dan Scott to discuss his years as chaplain at Baylor, so we decided to take full advantage and have our interview outside in Lupton Circle. We discussed Dan's childhood and adolescence, his difficult first year at Baylor, and his approach to writing prayers. I asked Dan to select one of his prayers to read for us, which is how we close out this segment. The full interview with Dan can be found on our SoundCloud page. I hope you enjoy his words as much as I did. And now, Dan Scott. Well, hello, I'm Dan Scott. I'm the chaplain at Baylor, and I have been the chaplain since 2003. And this is my final year heading to to retirement. You know, in some ways, I've had a wonderful, charmed life. I really have. Um, I've been able to do what I love and just relish almost every day of my working life. It's, it's been wonderful. On the other hand, I've been through some sadness. My mother died when I was 15. Uh, my wife died when I was 43. Um, I've been through a few things that have uh, troubled my world. I'll put it that way. Uh, and I've been with a lot of people. As a pastor, um, for example, but um, you know what I what I learned, of course, from that is is that students and faculty here are like a big. This is like a big church, in a sense. We don't think of it that way, but on a given day, you know, I'm going to talk to somebody who's just overjoyed, maybe a new birth. Or something, and then I'm going to talk to somebody who's just brokenhearted. Sometimes that's a student. Sometimes that's a faculty member. I'm picturing a 15-year-old who's just lost his mother, and um, you know, I can't imagine a deeper feeling of despair than that. Um, How did you? How did you ride through that? And did you already have God in your life at that point? Or when did you discover that you had this power that you could lean on? Yeah, I did have God in my life, I think. Um, and I, I, that's a really good question. I think um, I've told people in crisis, lean on your faith and your friends. Let me let me say it another way. I know a lot of people, and I have a lot of friends, in fact, who know a lot about what they don't believe. And they're usually older than I was at that age. But they know a lot about what they've rejected. But you can't live off that. And you can't go through a crisis like that. You've got to figure out what you do believe, what's in your heart, what's deeply rooted in your, in your being. 
And I think I did have some, you know, was it, um, was it pretty raw at times? Yes, I think so. Um, losing mother was a real blow because she was, um, my, I had a wonderful father. I really did. But mother was the one who I think genuinely believed in me and gave me a sense of, um, that I could, I, that I could do what I needed to do in life. Um, you could call her my best cheerleader, even though she was the tough one in the family. She was the one that you didn't want to deal, <laughs> deal with if you were in trouble often. Uh, but beyond that, she was, uh, she was an incredible encourager. I was interested to learn about Randy Weinberg and uh, his path from wrestler to to Buddhist mm -hmm. and just that conception of like the the wrestler both literal and, and figurative. I think there's something in the persona of the wrestler that's maybe in the persona of the pastor as well that you do have to kind of not back down from life. There's a fighting spirit maybe. I don't know. Can can you draw a parallel between those two? I mean, you could have wallowed in your despair, I guess is what I'm saying, and, and let yourself be pinned to the mat. But but you didn't. You got up and you kind of fought through it. And you, you're, from what I can tell, a stable individual with, with a, <laughs> good, a good on a, on a good day <laughs> with a good life. So so I mean, how important is like the fighting spirit to to maybe what you do? I'll give a football analogy since. I ended up here being chaplain of the football team some and talking to football players a lot before every game, for example. Uh, a football analogy I would get is if you, if you think you're going to play football and not get hit, that isn't going to happen. You're going to get hit. And you have to figure out early on if that's something you can handle. Because I've seen, I've seen players who could not handle that. And I think some things don't need to be forgiven. They just need to be recognized as part of the, the give and take of life. My first year, I believe, here, we had an on-campus suicide. And it shook the community, as you can imagine. And I got a call... I think in the middle of the night, if I recall, to join the administration team, thinking about how to handle it and how to handle it because it affected faculty members, it affected students. Uh, there, was, there was just widespread anxiety and, and a sense of foreboding. And I remember talking to the headmaster at the time and saying, um, he looked at me and he said, what do you think we can do? And I said, um, well, they need to know the truth. And I think he had already said that. He had arrived at that. We need to tell the truth. What happened? And I said, will you, will you do that? And he said, I'll do that. And I said, if you do that, I'll talk to the kids. I'll talk to them. And I did. And it was a moving moment. And I realized, I guess you would call it the power of influence or the power of what I brought to the party. 
in such a crucial, difficult moment. Uh, I had had a a father-in-law who committed suicide, which gave me some frame of reference to talk. And um, I, uh, I don't even recall everything I said, but I remember Jim Stover saying, they heard you. They were just wrapped in attention. And all I can say is that whether you call that uh, just a divine moment, to be able to offer something to the community when the community's broken was a powerful moment for me. How does the chaplain accomplish that goal of giving the students the the spiritual nourishment that they need to thrive, Mm -hmm. I guess? Well, one thing that shouldn't be overlooked, and I think this is true probably for everybody who teaches, is you're not going to click with every student in the same way. And to use an analogy, those who are hungry come to eat. And you discover students who are hungry uh, and students that take the initiative even to respond to you. You try to offer every student something. When I was a pastor, I was given some good advice one time. said, some people will let you be their pastor, their minister, the day you walk in the door. Other people are one-year people. Other people are five-year people, then 10-year people. They're not going to let you in to their lives for a certain amount of time. They're going to stand off, and they're going to keep you at arm's length and and not let you uh, not let you deal with the matters of the heart. But the students are like that too, I think. Some will kind of hold you at arm's length, but others you can tell almost immediately that they're looking for they're looking for something that hopefully you can you can help. My private prayers are much like the Psalms. I've often told students and others that uh, if you read the biblical text, one of the things you discover is that the Psalms were the place where people talked to God. And some of those are not pretty. They're angry. Uh, They express their deep, deep doubt and frustration. Uh, They're what I might call difficult prayers. And my prayers, uh, if I'm honest about it, sometimes are like that. I'm driving down the road and I'm just terribly angry about something or terribly broken about something. Uh, That's the way I talk to God and express that. Public prayers, though, are an attempt to, to formulate a way to talk for the community and to the community. Sometimes for the community, expressing what we, uh, what we deeply want to, to happen. Like if I'm praying for the Board of Trustees and they're working on a major project, I'm going to try to find a way to talk about uh, the challenge they face and how deeply they want it to succeed and so forth. At the same time, part of that prayer is trying to say something maybe that they might not have yet considered, the larger picture. The one that I have here in the first book is tragedy at Virginia Tech, the shooting at Virginia Tech in 2007, which didn't 
affect us directly. It was indirect, but that kind of thing impacts people. And so I offered God of comfort and challenge. We paused this morning to pray for troubled people, both far and near. We pray for the troubled community at Virginia Tech. In the midst of their sorrow, sadness, confusion, and anger, inject a measure of comfort. For mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters who have lost so much, bring a moment of hope. We also pray for troubled people much closer to home. When those around us are troubled, give us the words, the wisdom, and the willingness to respond. When we are troubled, save us from despair and silence and lonely self-destruction. Remind us that we have someone to talk to and turn to. Remind us that we need not hurt alone. We pray for our troubled world and even our own troubled society. Give us the insight to connect the dots between the seeds we sow and the society we reap. Thank you for one another. Thank you for our community. Thank you for random acts of kindness experienced here every day. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. In the name of the one who calls us all to courage and kindness. Amen. Dan, I've been here a long time at Baylor, and I've uh, seen at least four chaplains, probably. And uh, in my mind, you will be uh, the Baylor chaplain. You were a great example and a great, uh, just a great chaplain for us, a great leader, and a good spiritual leader for the school. Really appreciate you. Good luck to you. Dan, we will miss you and the prayers and care that you've shared with us over the years. Happy retirement. We love you, buddy. Well, I'm really going to miss you next year, Dan Scott. Who am I going to call Reverend Snow now? I really appreciated all the timely prayers and moments of thought you've given us over the years. So good luck and stop by to see us sometime. Hey, Rev. Scott, I'm going to miss you next year. I'm going to miss your sense of humor and your guidance with planning for classes. Dan, thank you so much for all your years of service. I'm really going to miss having lunch and talking out all the theological issues of the world with you. Happy retirement, Dan. Uh, good luck with whatever's next. We'll miss you. Rev. Scott, you know, thank you for everything that you've done for Baylor. And uh, I didn't have the opportunity to have you in class, but I, I listen to you each Friday and Monday in my chapel talks. So appreciate everything you've done and uh, enjoy your retirement. Dan, man. Glad to see you. Happy retirement, but good Lord, we'll miss you. Um, those words of wisdom that you always give those boarders. I know what you can do. You got to record those words of wisdom and send them to us every year because I, I just can't imagine uh, uh, an orientation without those words. You've been the best, man. We'll miss you. Come back and visit. So, Dan, I want to thank you for your contribution to uh, to the life of the school. I appreciate your balance and I appreciate your servant's heart. And I wish you nothing but the best moving forward. We're certainly going to miss you here and uh, not exactly sure how we're going to replace you because some some people serve roles that uh, they're able to make themselves irreplaceable. and You may just fall into that category, but best of luck and uh, Godspeed. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mr. Scott, for always hyping us up before football games on Fridays. Uh, 
you always came in there and knew exactly what to say and kept us close to uh, our hearts and you always told us you know the mindset to go into and, and it helped us I think win games so thank you. Rev Scott thank you for all that you have given to Baylor and we wish you all the best in this next leg of your journey. Dan I'm truly going to miss you man. I've enjoyed our talks together and your wisdom. It has really been a comforting thing during tough times at Baylor with people passing and different things that go on during our everyday lives. You've really been a guiding light for a lot of people. I'm gonna miss you, my friend. God bless. Hey Dan, wishing you all the best in your retirement. You have been just an amazing gift to the school and we wish you the best of luck. Scott, welcome to the land of the newly retired. Congratulations on a job well done and a life well lived. I look forward to our continued theological disputes and discussions. Dan always seems to have the right words at the right moment. I've always appreciated his presence and his prayers, and uh, he'll be greatly missed. I know I'll miss him. Dan's wisdom will live on at Baylor for years to come. If you want to hear more of the prayers and devotions written by Dan during his tenure here, he has several compiled in a volume entitled Baylor Prayers, available both in the bookstore here on campus and on Amazon. A second volume is soon to follow. We extend our sincere gratitude to Dan for his service to Baylor and for giving us time for this interview to Bill Cushman for his incredible institutional memory and love of Baylor, to Shaw Wilson for explaining the nuances of the role, and to our readers, Phil Massey and Scott Wilson, for lending their voices to Dan's incredible words. Finally, a special thank you to Senior Harrison Williams, who composed all the music for this episode with the exception of the final track. Until next time, go Big Red.